were passed down so that uh, they, they were still existent whenever whoever put it all together did so. Um, we think it was had to have been concluded at least um, during the time, of, uh, the earliest would have been the time of the judges and possibly even pushed way back to the Babylonian captivity. But we're not real sure exactly when it was completed, but um, we, we see uh, passages in there that talk about things that didn't happen until the time of the judges and possibly even a reference to uh, the division of the land to, from Judah and Israel and uh, so it, that could have been in the time of the monarchs. We're not real sure, but um, it is interesting to look at the book and remind you that there are different types of literature. There's uh, uh, narratives or stories, which is in the first, uh, first 12 uh, chapters are all about these narratives and stories. And we looked at uh, one last week and one th this week, and we'll, we'll be looking at some more as we go through the book on Sunday mornings. Um, and uh, then there's, so there's narratives or stories in there, these long lists of geographic lists of where the people are going to have their land. And so all the 12 tribes get all their land. And then the last two chapters, we have speeches. And so there's different types of uh, literature. Um, you can do an overall outline of the book looking at these different types of genre, different types of literature that are there. Verse 12, uh, we talked about was a victorious conquest where they go in and they take possession of the land that God is giving them. And then uh, 13 through 22, tribal inheritances where the different tribes get their divvying up the land. And then we looked as well the, at the last two chapters, uh, covenant loyalty and the speeches of Joshua here at the end of his life. And that's where we see uh, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Uh, that's right there at the end. So just kind of a quick review of that, and, and we're going to get back to that, Lord willing, next week. Tonight I thought it was important, especially since we were in Joshua chapter 2 this morning, and we dealt mostly with the, the middle part there, the meat, <laughs> if, if you will, or uh, Rahab's uh, profession or confession of faith uh, there uh, in the middle of the chapter, but there are some issues uh, here in uh, Joshua chapter 2, some issues with Rahab that I want us to kind of uh, consider tonight, and, and hopefully uh, maybe some answers, some questions might be answered as, as we went through it. So, um, would one of you volunteers over here read um, the first, uh, oh, I don't know, let's Let's read the first, uh, first seven verses. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. 
So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Thank you. Now, here in uh, Joshua chapter 2, we're introduced to this uh, individual named Rahab. Not seen her before, but it is interesting that Rahab is one of the few women in the Old Testament that, yes, for lack of a better term, they get press in the New Testament as well. So I, I want us just to, I mean, she's obviously a, an important individual uh, in the Bible. It is one commentator even said, you know, you, you don't necessarily need chapter two here. You could go from the end of chapter one right on to chapter three and not really skip a beat, you know. You don't, but, but this chapter is put in here in the story of Rahab is very important, but it's not absolutely essential to the, the conquering of the lands and everything. But obviously we get her in here for a reason. And so with that in mind, I want us to see what the New Testament tells us about her. So hold your place here at Joshua 2 and turn with me to Matthew um, chapter 1. Who knows what you find in Matthew 1? Genealogy. Genealogy, yeah, very good. Matthew chapter 1 and... Um, Verse 5, um, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. There she is. There's not that many women that we see in the, um, uh, in the genealogy of Jesus, but here she is. Um, now, it goes on. Um, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Uh, who was Boaz? Yeah, he's got married Ruth, right? And so we, we're going to see Ruth in the next part of, of verse 5 there. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And so you got two women there. Right? Uh, so we see Rahab and Ruth in Jesus' uh, genealogy. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Now it's coming into light here, some of her importance, right? They're going into the land, and uh, Salmon uh, marries Boaz. Well, I want us to see the different, uh, and, and so she's very important here, but I want us to see some of the other women in Jesus' genealogy since we're here, um, just uh, kind of quickly. So we're going we're gonna to begin at verse 2 and see all of the, um, the genealogy that Matthew gives us here uh, up to that point. But he says, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah, was the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There's another one of them. You familiar with Tamar? Tamar from uh, Genesis chapter 38. Um, Judah is, is married and he has three sons. Okay? And his oldest, he arranges the marriage to, uh, with Tamar. But his oldest son, I can't remember his name, you find it there in Genesis 38. He's not necessarily a good guy and so... The Lord takes him. He's gone. He dies. And it is in the, the Jewish tradition there that the, the next in line, if the brother dies, doesn't leave any children. The next in line is supposed to take her and marry her and give her children. But they will be the other brother's children and not his. And so, um, and so sure enough, that's what happens. The second brother uh, marries her. But... Uh, Lord's displeased with him too. I'll let you read that yourself uh, in, in Genesis 38. 
But, uh, and so he dies. And so Judah has one son left, and he's supposed to be the next one to do it, right? And, uh, but he's kind of young, and Judah's afraid that maybe, I, I guess it seems that he's thinking she's jinxed somehow, and that her husband's die, and so he doesn't want his youngest son to take her. But he says, listen, let him grow up. You go live with your parents until this, my youngest son grows up, and then I'll give him to you, right? Well, a long time passes, and he doesn't uphold his end of the bargain. His wife dies, and he's grieving some. And then he, once his time of grieving is over, he's going to this place to share some sheep. And um, along the way, he stops at this town that, that she, uh, Tamar finds out he's going. She knows he's, he's not going to uphold his end of the bargain. And so she dresses up with a veil and, and pretends to be a prostitute. And so Judah sees her, and he goes over and bargains with her, and he says, uh, come, um, uh, let me sleep with you. And she says, well, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a goat. I'll send it to you. She says, well, I've got to have something right now. You know, I'm not going to just, you know, we, we don't do just credit here. You need to uh, put something down on this. So he gives his staff and uh, his signet uh, uh, thing. Yeah. And... Um, and then, uh, so, so they sleep together, and then she takes off, and she takes his staff and his signet uh, uh, ring with her, and uh, he didn't know what happens to her. Well, later, he, he sends a, a servant of his with the goat back to that town, and he's going to get his stuff back from her and you know, give her the goat that he promised. And she's not there, and his servant can't find her anywhere. So he says, uh, so the servant asks some men in town, says, where's the temple prostitute that was here? And they said, there's never been a temple prostitute here. And he says, yeah, she, she was just here just, you know, a few months ago. No, no, not here. And so he comes back with word to Judah and saying, you know, she wasn't there. Here's your goat back, and I couldn't get your stuff. And Judah says, uh, well, let's just, let's just let it go. We won't, we won't worry about it. Just be my loss of that stuff. Well, word gets back to Judah a little while later that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. She's not married. She was married to his sons and supposed to be, I guess, promised to his youngest son. And she's pregnant. Terrible thing. She's been praying the prostitute. So he says, bring her out and we'll put her to death. That's, a, that's the penalty for this. And um, so what she does, she takes his staff and his signet uh, ring, whatever it is, and, and sends it to him and says, uh, whosoever this is, is the man whose child I'm bearing. And he goes, oh no, she's more righteous than I am. And uh, because he knew that he didn't, uh, didn't uphold his end of the bargain. And so anyway, those, those are where these two children come from with, uh, with Tamar. It's kind of interesting that this is one who's in Jesus's, you know, genealogy. And then, um, then we, 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 we'll get back to Rahab in verse 5, but we see um, in verse 6, uh, you know, David is the, the son of Jesse, but it says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Here we got another sketchy story, don't we? We all know this story. It's Bathsheba. And um, she's been uh, advertising her body at night up on the roof. I don't know if she knew David was looking or not, but he sees her bathing and is interested. And when the men are out to battle, he calls her over, and sure enough, she gets pregnant. And 
Uh, he tries to trick Uriah into sleeping with her so it looked like it's Uriah's child, but doesn't happen. He winds up having to uh, have Uriah put to death by sending him out with the army in the front line, and then everybody else pulled back, and Uriah's the only one, and he dies. And, uh, it was a mess. But anyway, this is a... Uh, uh, this is a woman, you know, Bathsheba. It doesn't mention her by name, but uh, he just said her, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's kind of an interesting way to put it. And then the other, only other woman in Jesus' genealogy that's mentioned in this genealogy, we find in verse 16, of course, who's, uh, it talks about uh, Joseph and uh, the husband of Mary of whom uh, was born uh, Jesus, who's called the Christ. So you have these, uh, what, four women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, uh, who we're going to deal with a little bit more in just a minute, Bathsheba, even though it doesn't mention her by name, she was Uriah's wife, and, and then Mary, and they're the only four uh, who are mentioned. Um, and, of course, Bathsheba's not mentioned by name, but, but we, we know. Um so, so she's one of very few women. Of all the women, you could have maybe uh, listed uh, Sarah, you know, Abraham's wife, but she's not, she's not in there. Probably a number of others, you could have listed the names of the mothers, but he didn't. These are the only four that make it. And so she's one of the few women in Scripture who's listed in Jesus' genealogy. Kind of interesting press for this one who we find here uh, in, uh, in uh, Joshua chapter 2. Another place that she's found, she's found two other places in the New Testament. Uh, one of those is Hebrews 11.31. What is, uh, what's going on in Hebrews 11? <coughs> faith Hall of Fame. Faith Hall of Fame, right. It talks about uh, Abel, and by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice to God, and then Enoch was taken, he lived by faith, Noah lived by faith, Abraham, uh, Isaac and Jacob, and it talk, goes on talks about uh, uh, Jacob and, and Joseph uh, living by faith, and then Moses living by faith, and uh, so on. And then uh, verse uh, 29, he's talking about all the people of Israel by faith, they're passing through the Red Sea on dry ground. Um, and then it jumps ahead just a little bit, verse 30 there, by faith, uh, uh, the walls of Jericho fell. It's talking about the people's faith, I guess, after people marched around them for uh, seven days. And then, verse 31, here she is. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Here she is in this one chapter that, that, that lifts up so many people uh, of uh, faithfulness in the Old Testament. And he goes on in just a little bit and says, I don't have time to give you all the names. But of those names that he did have time to give, Rahab made it. One lived by faith. Interesting thing. And he says Rahab, the, the prostitute. Uh, prostitute Rahab. And then the other place, the only other place in the New Testament she's mentioned is James chapter uh, 2. And here again we're going to see her listed by, uh, so the author of Hebrews has listed her as one of the, the heroes of the faithful. And now James, when he's talking about living by faith and showing your faith by your deeds, uh, he mentions Abraham. Uh, he does, but here in chapter 2, verse 25, 
Talking about those who are living by faith, those who are faith. It says, in the same way, uh, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And you got two books that are, that are majoring on faith and what faith means and living by faith. And she's listed in both of them. It's an amazing thing. Here's this, this woman, uh, Rahab. Um, and so you look at that and you go, but, but, but he says she was a prostitute. That's not the type of people. It's a harlot, a, a, a woman of ill repute. I mean, even reading it this morning in, in worship, it's almost like, is, is this one of the words you can actually use in worship, you know? Talk about what, what she did. She was a prostitute. Well, um, we, we, there's almost a little bit of embarrassment of, of reading it for her. Um, in, a, in, a, in a public setting, there are two different Hebrew words that are used for prostitute. One is for a shrine prostitute or temple prostitute, and that would be, have been used uh, of what uh, Tamar was pretending to be in Genesis chapter 38. The other was a word that was used for just prostitutes in general. It didn't have to be a shrine prostitute, just a prostitute, I guess, the, the way she made her living. And so the word that, that is used for Rahab uh, is the latter. It's zona in the Hebrew, Z-O-N-A. And um, so it's just the, the regular prostitute, not the shrine prostitute, it's <coughs> a regular prostitute. What's, what's the difference? Well, one would be involved with uh, uh, pagan uh, worship and shrines, and so they would have prostitute service, and uh, like that would be part of a, especially if they had gods that uh, they worshipped. Would you know, being uh, uh, polytheistic, they had all kinds of gods, and one of them would be a fertility gods, mm -hmm. and so when they would worship the fertility gods, they would have the prostitutes in there to be part of their worship. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's almost difficult even to talk about it here, isn't it? You know? King James is harlots. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so um, the the Greek word that is used in, in Hebrews and James when it's talking about um, uh, Rahab is the Greek word porne. Um, does that word ring a bell for me? Yeah. Huh? Pornographic pornography, right? This is where we get our word pornographic pornography, and it has to do with the actions of what a, a, a prostitute would do. Some in, in, over the years have tried to, um, I guess, tried to soften this a little bit. Um, Josephus, first-century Jewish historian, uh, kind of contemporary of Jesus's. Two daughters of Lot, they wouldn't just be considered harlots. <laughs> no, they weren't necessarily good either. But uh, anyway, this is what Josephus said. I think he's trying to soften the idea here. He says, Josephus maintained Rahab was an innkeeper. And uh, this commentator says, it is possible to hold that she was both that and a harlot. Uh, the tar Targums uh, called her, and it's got... Uh, a Greek word here, uh, Anyway, 
Uh, it means an innkeeper. Uh, but another one indicates that the word in the Targums always receives un, uh, unfavorable sense. And so no matter what you say, I, I, uh, maybe she was an innkeeper, but it was an inn where people would come to have prostitutes, and so she would have been one she of those. Was, she was a madam. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it could have been that. So it's interesting that uh, these spies, these spies uh, would have gone there. I wanted to read you one more thing about page 29. I did read you about Josephus, all right. This, this story, uh, yeah. this, this story involves uh, the conversion of a pagan, a Canaanite, even a harlot. The word for harlot here and gives you the, Greek, the Hebrew words and talks about the different ones. Uh, he, he goes on and says, now that can be offensive. Uh, we say we can't have that. The church is only for respectable, clean, middle class folks. But that's like saying that hospitals are only for doctors, nurses, and x-ray machines instead of sick people. Or it's like saying that only morticians and the coroners belong in the morgues instead of dead people. Who then should be in the church but sinners? So the church is not a club but a refuge for sinners who have been touched by the grace of God. Apparently Rahab's past uh, did not bother the writer of the first gospel. Rather, Matthew seemed to see Rahab as a trophy of divine grace. Astounding, isn't it, that the shady lady of Jericho should be the ancestress of Jesus the Messiah? Amazing to see God's uh, grace. Uh, and it kind of reminds us as we see God's grace for her from Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know if any of you were thinking of this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, the first five verses. Listen to what Paul writes here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air whose spirit is now at work with those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And that was Rahab, too. Right? And that's us as well. We're saved by grace. Rahab was saved by grace. That's an amazing thing, an amazing story of God's grace in her life to see how he can take someone like that. And, and change them and use them even to become a part of the ancestry of Jesus. Amazing thing. So we, I wanted to deal with that a little bit tonight, um, but there's another issue from uh, Joshua chapter 2 that I wanted to deal with. Not only was she a, a harlot, which makes it kind of a difficult thing, but I think when we see that, we should be reminded of the grace of God. In that. But and we, there's another issue, I think, um, that kind of gives Christians pause as we look at it. In verses 4 and 5, 
So she's, she's got the men there who are there. Oh, by the way, um, I, I wanted to mention this. One of these commentators points out that when the spies come into town, where, where would be a better place to hide? I mean, this would be like the, any guys coming into town, that's where they're going to go naturally, the first thing. So that would be like the least suspicious thing that they could do is go to uh, a, a prostitute's house. And so it's kind of a, uh, maybe the, the best place for them to go if they're wanting to hide what they're, what they're there about. So anyway, but I wanted just to look again at uh, chapter 2, uh, Joshua 2, verse 4 and 5. All right, so the king uh, sends uh, people over to Rahab's house and, and says, you know, those men that came here, you need to bring them out. And this is, this is her response. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. <coughs> At dusk, uh, when it was time to close the city gates, the men left. I, I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had already hidden them, right? Does that cause anybody else any issues? Here, this woman of great faith and lifted up is this, uh, you know, uh, one of the uh, of the, the, the chapters that talk about people of great faith in the Old Testament. She is used as a as that, that shining illustration for us. Well, what's she doing here? Did she's lying? Did she know where they came from? Yep. Absolutely. She tells them, "I know where you came from." <laughs> She's already hidden them when they come, so they didn't have to inform her where they came from. She already knew. That's the reason she'd already hidden them. What else did she say? I didn't know where they were going. I didn't know where they were going. They weren't gone yet. And she says they have gone. So she lied about that as well. Now, um, this, and part of the reason for doing, showing you the, the structure of chapter 2 this morning um, in the introduction, you actually put it in, the out, in your outlines there, um, was, was for this very reason. Uh, Dr. Davis, he, he got such a great sense of humor, but he says, uh, it's tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie, quibbling endlessly about the, manner, about the matter and never getting around to hearing uh, Rahab's truth, which the writer has conspired to make the center of the whole narrative. And so basically what he's saying is this, this whole thing about us worrying about uh, if she told a lie and how if she told a lie, she could still be seen as this virtue of faith in the uh, New Testament. Um, it it kind of can be an issue for us, but it's not an issue for the writer of uh, the author who's, who's writing down this, this story in Joshua. It doesn't seem to really be an issue for him. So we kind of have to ask a question, are we to take from this that it's okay or good to lie? At times, is it, is it okay? Um, back in the uh, 1960s, there was a book came out, uh, Joseph Fletcher, <coughs> was the name of the author, uh, a book called Situational Ethics. I don't know if you all heard that. It was big back those days. And that is the situation that you're in demands how you should behave. And um, so we hear the, uh, I'm not sure which one of the, of the songwriters wrote the song, one of the Crosby, Stills, or Nash wrote the song, uh, if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. It's only the right thing to do. It's a situation, right? So, um, and, and so the, the, the biggest, uh, according to situation ethics, I guess, the, the biggest moral uh, 
the thing that should, should move us is love. You always have to do the most loving thing. I mean, you get to decide what's love, I guess. So, but um, anyway. That's what, that's what some people say, but what does God's word tell us about? Yeah, who, who is the father of lies? Satan, he's the one who lied in the beginning, right? So when you speak the lies, whose who's language are you speaking? Satan's language is what Jesus says, right? He's telling the religious leaders, if you're, if you're lying, you're speaking the language of your father, the devil. Yeah. But somehow, um, let's see, is that, is that all I was going to say on that? Uh, one of the things is, is he doesn't want us to, to miss um, the main point by focusing so much on this, but he does say this. Um, this is from Dr. Davis again. He says, uh, Bible readers must always be careful to distinguish between what the Bible reports and what it recommends. <laughs> What it reports and what it recommends. As the author's writing this, he's saying, this is what happened. This is the result of what happened. Um, and so we say that that is truthful recording of, of the historical event there. So when we're reading the Bible, we've got to always be careful to distinguish between what the Bible reports and what it recommends. Um, between what it records and what it requires. What are we required to do in regards to truth? Always tell the truth. He goes on with this uh, other illustration. He says, the Bible reports that Jacob had four wives. It's hardly encouraging us to do the same, right? So we need to remember that. Okay. Um, so when you look at this lie and see how it turned out, he's not recommending that we decide when it's okay to tell a lie and when we don't. He's simply saying that she did. And so that's one thing I want you to notice about that. But the second thing is a considered question uh, can God and does God use sinful behavior to bring about his will did he use the sinful behavior of Jacob who had four wives to bring about his will yeah. 12 children 12 sons 12 tribes of Israel right? he, had 13. He, had, he had daughters but he only had 12 sons One yeah. yeah but I think he only had his, his uh, Joseph had two sons. Anyway, um, <coughs> and so God has used Jacob even in the sinfulness of having four wives, I guess. Um, or consider this. What is the most evil, sinful event that's happened in all of history? murder of Jesus Christ and that was a sin yeah. and it brought out, brought about his will yep absolutely God was able to use the sinfulness of man in the worst the worst activity <coughs> uh, uh, most evil activity of all history where uh, sinful man took the one sinless being that there was and nailed him to a cross uh, it uh, mentions it Acts chapter 4 Uh, verses uh, 23 through 28. He's talking about uh, Peter and John being released from the Sanhedrin. They've been told not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. Well, anyway, they go back and they report to uh, the believers that were gathered about what's going on. 
Acts uh, 4, 23. Uh, someone want to read that? Uh, 23 through 28. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In Romans it says, God puts people in fire. Yeah. So here, here right, absolutely, and, and he uses them, um, and here, what we mentioned about the, uh, the the worst evil that man has ever perpetrated on anybody else, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And they're mentioning it here, saying they did it, terrible thing, but it was your will that they did it to bring about the greatest good that could ever be done. That's why I said I believe God put Trump in fire. <laughs> anyway, um, and so here God is using some behavior that's not recommended I think we still need to see it as somehow sinful lying um, and yet God uses it um, in a mighty way and, and this and because she hit the spies uh, listed as, as, a, as a great virtue of faith in the New Testament God's ways are not our ways. Um, and he can and does use sin and sinful people to bring about his will. But that is never an excuse for us to say I'll sin so that God's will will be done here. That's not the right way to think about it. Yeah. Try that at the, at the <clears throat> in court. Um, this this picture of Rahab that we see here, which we, we just talked about tonight, more of her, and just to see this person who really was, um, you know, <coughs> a, a prostitute. We look at that and go, that is, you know, certainly the type of person you look down your nose at. But uh, we see God's grace in her life, doing amazing things, bringing her to faith. Um, it, 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 uh, I mean, she saw it, and all the other people there saw it, but she's the only one acted in faith. Certainly she didn't act in faith on her own. It was God who did it and brought it to her, and, and, and she acted on it. But it's so incredible to see the grace of God in her life. But just like Ephesians chapter 2 says, so were we. We were uh, by nature objects of God's wrath, but in his grace. He, uh, he came and he sent his son. And he applied the work of his son to us by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit to save us. 
uh, from his wrath. What amazing grace um, that, that we see. And so, that's the reason we would, uh, we would sing the one that we all know. We don't have to have the words before. Right? We can sing it. it. I don't want it to sound like a train. <laughs> Amazing.